If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy chapter 3. We are still in history, but it's history that Moses commands the people to teach their children from generation to generation that it never be forgotten. Why would he want us to teach history to our children? So that we don't repeat it, and so that they can have faith in the true and living God. Why did the spies, 10 out of the 12, come back and say, we can't take the promised land? Because there were giants in the land, right? They lacked faith. They said, we can't beat those guys, they're huge. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 3 is about Israel is going to take on two giants. And with God, all things are possible. For whom? For those who have faith. And that's why Moses wants it taught from generation to generation. When the, when the people said, we can't do it, they wanted for 38 more years in the wilderness. When they come against Og and Sihon and they say, with God we can do it, they marched right through and conquered. The difference is, did they put their faith in God? So let's pick up with chapter 3, verse 1. Then we turned. Remember, they have skirted the lands of Edom and Moab and Ammon. God said, I won't give even an inch of their land. Why? Because he had promised it to Esau, to Ammon, and to Moab. And when God makes a promise, God keeps it. So they've skirted those lands. They've now come to the north part of what we would call today the nation of Jordan. To land owned and controlled by the Amorites. The Amorites were the one in Genesis chapter 15 where God said, Your descendants are going to have to go down into Egypt for a few hundred years. Because the sins of the Amorite are not complete. But you know what? Come Deuteronomy chapter 3, the sins of the Amorites are full. Full to the point that God will not tolerate them in his land anymore. You guys realize that out of this whole universe, God has claimed a little piece of land for himself. The land that we today call Israel, God says is his land. And he allows to live in it whom he allows to live in it. Yes, ma'am. Do you believe that the, the rock, whatever it is, the outcropping, where... Do I believe the rock on the top of the, the, the Temple Mount is the navel of the world, the yes. point from which he created? Yes, only because the Hebrew says that. Hebrew calls it the navel of the world. And what is a navel? That's where the body grows out from. Yep. So that little piece of land is all God claims is his. The rest, he doesn't care. But the people who live in that little piece of land must have faith in him. Remember, God's listening. Okay. I, I know, point at him. Okay. Verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. Bashan is a mountain range, part of the Golan. They're at the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. So if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, look to the northeast. And those mountains, 
They're made out of volcanic rock, right? Black lava. And the soil is so producing, so nourishing, so rich, that the grass is so lush and green. It's a great place for raising cattle. So a lot of times you hear in the Bible, the fat cows of Bashan, and it's not, never mind. I can't even do it with a straight face. Okay. I'd be in trouble. I get so many emails. Okay. Yeah. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. And oh, King of Bashan came out against us. He and all his people to battle at Edre. Why does the king of Bashan come out against the children of Israel? What did they do? Ah, God gave him courage. And he's not going to let the children of Israel set foot in his land because who is his God? He worships the pagan gods who are manifestations of Satan. And does Satan want the children of Israel to come into this land? Oh, he does not. So as soon as Og sees him coming, he puts his army in battle array, sends him out to fight. Verse 2, And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him. That is not a casual, eh, don't worry about it. It's a command. Do not fear. Fearing the enemy is only based on a lack of faith. If God has said, you go in and I will conquer them. If you're afraid of the enemy, it's only because you don't think God can do it. Is this battle going to be any problem for God? No. So let's make a personal application right now. Do you have any fear in your life? Anything that you're afraid of? Especially in this world today, people are starting to get afraid. Don't be afraid. God said, I've got it. It's in my hand. So do not give in to fear. How many times in the scripture does God say, do not fear? Don't let a spirit of fear overtake you. Because just about every chapter. Because what is fear? Fear is based on a lack of faith. What if God doesn't? You know what? God will. So there is no reason to be afraid. And that's why he wants this taught to generation after generation. How tall are these giants? The beds are 13 and a half feet. Tow room. Tow room. Okay, let me go on. Verse 2, and the Lord said to me, do not fear him. Again, that word fear is a command form. Do not do it. For... Here's why you do not need to fear. I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. Do you believe it? Amen. If you believe it, you can't fear. It's a done deal. If God says it, he will do it. So says, you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. What did he do to Sion, king of the Amorites? Total devastation. Complete and total. Not a soldier left. Same thing's going to happen to Og. 
But you know what? They've already seen him destroy Sihon and his army. And yet they're afraid because they're coming up against another giant. Can God defeat a second giant? Yes. Answer is absolutely. Verse 3. So the Lord your God <clears throat> also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people. And we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. That's a total and complete victory. How many soldiers did Israel lose? Yeah. Not a one. Not a one. Do you think that's just because they were really good soldiers having been slaves in Egypt all that time? Did they spend their summers training with the Egyptian army? Of course not. <clears throat> Verse 4. And we took all his cities at that time. How many of them? All of them. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities. All the region of our Gov, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Now were these little <clears throat> unwalled villages unprepared for assault? No, look. Verse 5. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. Besides a great many rural towns. What do you know about these great fortified cities with high walls, gates, and bars? How did you normally have to conquer a city like that? Siege. Had to put them under siege and stay there for years to make sure nobody got out to get food or to get water until the people inside starved to the point they couldn't defend themselves anymore. Is that what happened here? No, Israel just marched through and conquered. How is that possible? With God, all things are possible. Verse 6. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, the women, and the children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. Why is that important? What's that? You're going to have to talk a little louder. <laughs> she doesn't want to. Okay. Motivation. We took booty. It's motivation. <laughs> yeah, but that's not all. They are going to settle in this land. Two and a half tribes are going to settle over here. And here they already have cattle. They already have sheep. They already have grapes. They already have fruit trees. They already have olive groves. They have houses built. It's like a reward of their faith. They don't have to start from scratch. God brings them into a place already prepared. And he promised that. And he promised that. And it makes me think of Petra where the children of Israel will flee in the middle of the tribulation period. Have you been there? There are houses cut out of the rock that will house a quarter of a million people. There's fresh running water that comes from the rock. Moses struck twice and got in trouble. There are nice, clean bathrooms. There's even an amphitheater for worship services, for Shabbat. It's all prepared. 
God has a place prepared in the wilderness, and he prepared it thousands of years ago. Yes. Was uh, Sihon the first giant that was killed? The first one that they conquered, yeah. And Sihon and then Og. Og. And then the next one, Goliath, that David killed? Or we'll have to get in here and read because the answer is no, there's more to come. Okay. Thank you. There are more to come. In Petra <clears throat> is overlooked by a mountain that's far enough away not to be a worry from a defense point of view. And somebody special is buried at the top of that mountain overlooking Petra. Aaron. Aaron, the high priest. We don't know where Moses is buried. The Catholic Church put a church where he was buried, but we don't know where he was buried. Yeah. Back to the scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 3. Verse 8, and at that time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who are on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. Where is Mount Hermon? Far north part of the Golan Heights. That's where the headwaters of the Jordans are. Jordan begins there, <clears throat> the Jordan River. It's not in Syria, but it's why you put it in quotes. Yep. There's something special there, too, at Mount Hermon that you've got to know about. Yes, Banyas. Banyas. Remember when Messiah went to Caesarea Philippi? That's Banyas. And Banyas is actually Panyas. But the Arabs can't pronounce the P, so they call it Banyas. It was the place where they worshipped the pagan god Pan, the little goat guy with the flute. And there if you go, Mount Hermon is a big stone mountain like Stone Mountain, Georgia. Huge stone mountain. And at the foot of it, where the headwaters of the Jordan River are, is a great cave called the gates of hell. Let's turn to Matthew and see what happened at that place. Yep, Crashes built in the wall where they had idols of Pan. Yep, sure did. When you went there, it just felt weird. You can feel the evil. Yep. That's right. <clears throat> so go to Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13. This takes place at Mount Hermon. When Yeshua came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Why doesn't it just say Caesarea? There's Caesarea Maritima that's on the Mediterranean. This is the one at Mount Hermon. He asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I... The son of man am. Why does he have the phrase the son of man? To refer back to Daniel 7. seven, That's a term for the Messiah. So he says right up front, I'm the Messiah, but who do men say that I am? They're standing in front of Mount Hermon, the place where they worshipped Pan. 
The place where there is the great cave called the gates of hell. It's important. So he said, some say John the Baptist, <clears throat> some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Oh, now catch his gaze directly into your eyes. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? If they say you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, and they're wrong, they're no different from the pan worshipers. And the pan worship is all behind them in the mountain, all over the mountain. Simon Peter answered and said, <clears throat> you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Yeshua answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. Now verse 18 has an interesting play on words, and it's important. You are Peter. That Greek word is Petros. It's masculine. And on this rock, that's Petra, that's feminine. The rock is not Peter. And the word isn't rock either. It's a little tiny stone. So Satan has this huge mountain and thousands of years of people worshiping him. And Messiah has this little stone. And if you're looking at this little stone against this huge stone mountain, who would you bet on in a fight? You might bet on the mountain, <clears throat> but you'd be wrong. So this rock is this first statement of faith that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'll build on this rock, on this little statement of faith, my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You might think that Satan, having all this head start, could overwhelm and snuff out this little statement of faith. But it's not going to happen that way. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. I wonder if that in their mind brought them back to Daniel 2 where it talks about the rock cut out of the hands oh, yeah. smashing the image on the feet. I'm entirely sure that you're exactly right. For those who can't hear him, he said, I wonder if that brought the disciples back to Daniel chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of the great idolatrous image. The head of gold was Babylon, chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persia, belly and thighs of brass, Macedonia or Greece, and the two legs of iron, Rome. And then the ten toes of iron mixed with clay was struck on the toes, right? By this rock cut out without human hands, and it smashed that image to powder. Those represent all of Satan's kingdoms down through time. And normally you would think to destroy a huge monument like that, you'd have to hit it in the head. But no, all Messiah had to do was strike it at the toes. And the whole thing was destroyed to dust. I bet they were thinking about that the whole time. Do I have any idea where in Messiah's ministry this took place? 
No, not exactly. John the Baptist was beheaded not too long after Messiah's baptism. Not more than six months or so afterwards. So this is all pretty early in the ministry. And of course, this same Peter, who said, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, denied him three times at his trial. So even he had to struggle. Could, could we think that the presentation in the Gospels are pretty well chronological? You know, this happened before this, and this happened, which happened before that, which happened before that? Not necessarily, no. Generally speaking, maybe, but not, not entirely. Because the way it's presented here is presented before his entry into Jerusalem, before his crucifixion. Oh, yeah, this is long before his crucifixion. But not necessarily right before. Right. Right. Okay, back to Deuteronomy 3. Verse 8 said, At that time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan from the river are known to Mount Hermon. Who controls most of that land today? Actually, Israel, but the United Nations says no. Yeah, it's what the United Nations, every nation of the world, including the United States, says belongs to Syria, but Israel says no, it's ours. But notice the phrase in verse 8, and at that time. That tells us there's a foreshadowing of something that's going to take place in the tribulation period. That's at the battle of Gog and Magog. Um, shall we say the dispute's going to be resolved by God? Yeah. And it will become undisputedly the land of Israel. Just as a little side note. Verse 10, no, 9. The Sidonians call Mount Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Sinir. It only tells us that because it's referred to in other places by these other names. And they want you to know it's the same mountain. Israel is an interesting place topographically. You can snow ski on Mount Hermon in the morning and then swim in the Dead Sea that same afternoon. It, it really is an interesting place geographically. Verse 10, in all the cities of the plain, all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Sakha and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Now Bashan you've heard about because of the fat cows. Where, what have you heard about Gilead? There's a bomb from Gilead that's good for eyes. And Elijah the Tishbite comes from Gilead. How do you know that? Because of the song, right? <laughs> yep. Even John the Baptist had his version of that song. Verse 11. For only, O king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. That's not a true statement. Because the English didn't translate it correctly. Only O king of Bashan remained of the remnant of the Rephaim, which is one clan of the giants. 
Remember, in the land of Israel, there's the Anakim and there's other clans of the giants, including the one from which Goliath comes from. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. That's not normal. What do people sleep on? On a cot. Cot wouldn't hold him. He was too big, too heavy. It says, is it not in Rabbah, the people of Ammon? Meaning they kept it in a museum. Nine cubits is its length. That means at least 13 and a half feet long. And four cubits is width. That's at least six feet wide, according to the standard cubit. Could you imagine how much the NBA would just jump for joy over somebody 13 and a half feet tall? We just don't have a concept of somebody that tall these days. Have they found skeletons of people that size? The answer is yes, they have in several places around the world. Why? Because there was more than one clan of giants. Can, could you go over that again? You said the Rephaim were one clan. What were the other, the other clans? Uh, one that remains in the land of Israel is the Anakim. 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 <clears throat> and we're going to read about several other clans as we go along. I, I thought, I'd understood, and I misunderstood, but I thought that the Rephaim was a general name for the giants, but it wasn't. Was a specific clan. Mm -hmm. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the word for giant back here in Genesis 3 is a different word, and it doesn't mean giant at all. Um, not Genesis 3, Genesis 6. 6. I have a red one out there. Let me check it. Susie Q, the answer to that is yes. She asks, would no survivors of Og mean that there were no descendants at all left of him? And that's correct. All gone. Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, which is a reference to the angels, that's how the angels are described in the book of Job repeatedly saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all they chose. Why didn't they marry female angels? There aren't any. So they saw women down here on earth and said, whoa, 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 and took all they wanted. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. That, I believe, has two meanings. First is, it's going to be 120 years till the flood. That's how long it's going to take Noah to build the ark. But second, he's talking about the total days of man are 120 years. If that refers to 120 years of jubilee, that's exactly 6,000 years, which is the time from creation till the rapture and the resurrection, which is right about where we are in the calendar. But at any rate, verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days, but the word is not giants, it's Nephilim. Nephilim. From the Hebrew verb nephal, which means to fall. So Lewis says there were fallen ones 
on the earth in those days. It wasn't the holy angels that stayed true to God that came and intermarried with the women. It was the angels that fell with Satan. The fallen ones and their offspring were an abomination. And that's part of the flood story. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. I digress. Verse 12. 12 through 14 is a block. And this land which we possessed at that time, from a roar which is by the river Arnon, which is a tributary of the Jordan River, and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. That is the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad. Why did Moses give the land to them? Because they wanted it. They said, we don't want to cross over the river. Why? They already had cattle and sheep. They already have cattle and sheep, and this land is so good for grazing. That's right. So they said, can we have it? Ah, that's coming. There's a condition. So he gives it to them with God's permission, but with a caveat. And that's important to the story, the caveat. Because what could have been their motivation? We're afraid of the giants over in the land. We don't have the faith. Let us stay here where it's safe. It's already conquered. But we're going to find out that's not their motivation. Is that the land was so good for the kind of farming they wanted to do. So verse 13. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the king of Oak, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. Why only half the tribe? was a big tribe and only half wanted to stay on this side. So the two and a half tribes completely filled that portion of land. It says all the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. Again that word giants is in giants is Rephaim. It's the tribe of giants that lived in that section of land. Sihon and Og weren't the only giants. Which is why God had all the descendants wiped out. Does God want angel DNA and human DNA mixed together? Absolutely not. It's a corruption that would corrupt the rest of mankind. Verse 14. Jair the son of Manasseh took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machites and called Bashan after his own name, Havot Jair, to this day. So two and a half tribes will remain east of the Jordan River and not come into the promised land. I'm waiting for somebody to go, wait a minute. God promised that portion to Israel too when he promised it to Abraham. The borders that God promised Abraham included this portion of land. So it's not that they're asking to stay outside of God's declaration of possession and inheritance. Just the portion on the east side of the river. And, and that portion today is, is that part of that disputed UN border? Or? Yep, 
So not really in Syria, but no. not really in Israel either. It is in Israel. They okay. claim it. Okay. And the United yeah, Nations like denies it. Okay. The entire United Nations, including the United States, denies that that's Israeli territory. Now, is that the Golan? That's the Golan. Okay. Yeah, but Israel took it back when they were attacked. Correct. So it wasn't like... They won it in conquest, which the law of war has always yeah. supported, until it becomes a question of Israel. And then we don't want the same laws to apply. That's getting fairly common in the world. Yeah. And if you remember, it all comes down to the Arabs have the oil. So we don't want to offend the Muslims and not have as much oil flow in just to defend Israel. That's a wrong attitude. Now that we're going green, it shouldn't <laughs> Yeah, okay. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, verse 23. Genesis chapter 50, verse 23 says, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So which portion of the tribe of Manasseh stayed? What did it say? Jair, the son of Manasseh. So that just shows how close we are to the progenitors and how they divide and split out the tribe of Manasseh into the two parts. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 3. I also gave Gilead to Machir. That's the same Machir that we just read about being dandled on the knees of Joseph. Verse 16. And to the Reubenites, that's the children of Reuben, and the Gadites, the children of the tribe of Gad, I gave from Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as the border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the people of Ammon. The plain also, <clears throat> with the Jordan as the border, from Kinneret. What's a Kinneret? The word Kinneret means harp. It's the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Why do they call the Sea of Galilee Lake Kinneret sometimes? Because it looks like a harp. It's shaped that way. As far as the east side of the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea. What is that? That's the Dead Sea. Why is it dead? Why is it so salty? Because it's the lowest building on earth. It's because of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, where people were turned into salt. So think about that when you're floating in the Dead Sea. You're floating in all those... Uh, yuck. Never mind. They've been dead a long time. Yeah, they've been dead a long time. 
Below the slopes of Pisgah, Mount Pisgah is in today's Jordan. It's where Moses looks over into the promised land and then dies in one of the valleys near Pisgah. Oh, nowhere near Petra. If you're looking at, from Jericho to the mountains of Jordan, that's Pisgah you're looking oh, okay. at. Okay, yeah, so, so uh, Petra's way south. Petra's way south. Yes. Remember, God would not give them any of that land so long as Esau's descendants remain. So what happens to Esau's descendants when the Lord returns? Yeah, all gone, all gone. Verses 18 to 20 is the yabut. Here's that condition, that caveat we've been talking about. Then I commanded you at that time saying, what's the word saying? It's a quote. The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. That word possess means to be a permanent inheritance from now unto forever. So when the United Nations says that belongs to Syria, God says, who did I give it to? Forever. All you men of valor shall cross over Arn before your brethren, the children of Israel. Not just with them, but what does it say? Before. You will lead the troops going into the land of Canaan. But your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities, which I have given you, <clears throat> until the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. Okay, two things we learn here. One is they must lead the charge. That way none of the rest of the children of Israel can say they stayed over here in the east side because they're cowards. When you lead the advance, you're not showing cowardice. You're showing great faith that you took this land because, as Moses says, yes, I know you have a lot of livestock. And this is good for livestock. But you must demonstrate your faith. And when do they get to return to their land? Not until all the rest of the land has been conquered and settled. What if that takes 10 years or 20 years? Get a weekend pass. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Okay. Verse 21. Go ahead. So the, the women and the children are staying behind. Is that in similar fashion uh, when God said, when you come up before me in, to worship on, for his modim, and no one shall covet your land while you're gone, is that not kind of like the same protection that he offered, may have offered in this situation? Yes, the women and children are going to be completely safe because God is guarding them. 
And the only way the soldiers can go off to war and leave them behind is to know that God will protect them because he said he would. So they're demonstrating their faith. And beyond that, that means the women and children will be farming the land and tending the sheep and tending the cattle and making sure that everything is good at home, waiting for their brave soldiers to come back. Well, they got the teenagers there to have two teenagers. Yes. Yeah, got to be 20 or above to go to war. Which is why David wasn't with Saul up at the front lines, but was back home keeping the sheep. Because he wasn't old enough to be a soldier. Imagine the shame for all the soldiers, those brave, mighty men, watching this little teenager walk out to meet Goliath. Okay, but that's for another story for another day. Let me move these so I make sure I don't miss a note. Okay. Verse 21, and I commanded Joshua at that time. Why does Moses command Joshua to do anything? Because Moses is going to die. Joshua is going to have to lead the people into the land. Did Moses choose Joshua? God chose Joshua. And God changed his name from Yehoshua to Joshua. Somebody go, no. He changed it from Hosea to Joshua, which is a big difference. The name Hosea means salvation. Yehoshua means the Lord saves. So Joshua was not leading the people going, look at me, I'm doing it, I'm the big man. He's saying, look to God. God will deliver you. So I think that was a cool change in name. So verse 21, And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. What phrase do you find just jumps out of that verse? At that time. What does the phrase at that time refer to? The tribulation. In the tribulation period, there are three great wars. The first is the Psalm 83 war, which is a battle with those nations that share a border with Israel. They're not too tough. And the Israeli defense forces, by the mighty hand of God, will completely defeat those enemies. Then here comes Gog and Magog, Russia, Turkey, Iran, and the rest of the Muslim nations, even across Africa, down into Sudan, across Libya. An army that would be how many people? Millions upon millions upon millions. The Israeli defense forces cannot possibly engage those forces and survive. Yes, all three of those wars happened in the tribulation. Psalm 83 is right after. The first seal that's opened is the false messiah 
who makes a seven-year covenant of peace, the next seal is war, the red horse. As soon as Israel lets down its guard and says, finally we have peace, they get attacked. But by the grace of God, they're able to defeat those nations that share a border from Lebanon all the way down to Gaza and expand out their borders. But one of the fundamental principles of Islam is that if Muslims have controlled any portion of land, they cannot allow Jews or Christians to um, have governance over it because that would be to admit that Allah is not greater than the God of the Jews and the Christians. So that will cause the Battle of Gog and Magog to come take back those formerly Muslim lands. And when Gog and Magog invades, the Israeli Defense Forces cannot possibly, by themselves, handle it. So what will give them the faith that God will do what he promised? Because they'll see what God did in the Psalm 83 war. That will give them confidence that when the armies of Gog and Magog attach, again, it's Russia, Turkey, Iran, Gomer, Togarma, um, Sudan, Ethiopia, Libya, all those great Muslim nations that do not share a border. But God said, I'll take care of them. What will give them the faith? They can see what God did already in the Psalm 83 war. And then, three and a half to four years later, comes the Battle of Armageddon where the entire world comes. And how will Israel have the confidence, the faith, that God will do what he said? They look back at the other two. Now look at this verse again. And I commanded Joshua at that time saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. There's you witnessed this victory. You saw God keep his promise. You saw how God can defeat the greatest, the largest, the most fearsome of enemies. I don't know how tall the children of Israel were in those days, but I assure you they were not 13 and a half feet tall. But God was able to deliver on his promise. And that's going to be the way in the tribulation period. Each war is greater and bigger than the next. In each one, they can look back on what God did in the previous one and have faith. It's almost like with this, God started with the big but, one at a time. What is he, he going to have to do when he get to the land of Canaan? Is there just one? No, there's going to be whole families. But then they're going to have cities where there aren't giants. So it's like if God defeated these giants, then this city is just going to be a cakewalk. Right. If it's just the Amorites, it'll be a cakewalk. You're absolutely right. So God is trying to build their faith by keeping his word and delivering them against all odds. And against the odds that they say, we cannot possibly, the answer is, well, you can't, but God can. Carrying on. In chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, we're almost through Deuteronomy, but i got a red sign on here. Let me look and see what that is. That's cool. Okay. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Verse 21, I don't think I ever finished it, shame on me. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. 
so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. That was not a limited time offer. As long as the Israeli army marches with God, they cannot be defeated. It's when they try and go without God that they're in trouble. So why does Moses and the Lord want generation after generation to hear these stories again? Because you and I will face trials that you'll think, I just can't. It's too big. It's too hard. If you keep your faith in God, nothing is too big. Nothing is too hard. Verse 22, you must not fear them. Why? What is fear? A lack of faith. You must not fear. For the Lord your God himself fights for you. Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, I's Moses. O Lord God, you have begun to show your servants your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? What's the answer to that? There are none. This is the same Israel Moses is talking to. Then the book of Isaiah, God says, bring all your idols and put them in a huge pile. Does that not break your heart? They have enough to make a huge pile. They didn't have just one or two scattered about. They had a whole bunches. And God said, put them in a pile and ask them to prophesy. What's going to happen tomorrow? Too hard? Ask them what happened yesterday and how it's going to be. Too hard? Why? Because they're nothing. So here the Lord is destroying these pagan nations like they're paper towns. Complete and total destruction. And yet why does Israel keep turning to the pagan idols then? Because they want to be like the other nations. And with the pagan idolatry goes sexual immorality. It's all about pleasing the flesh. And fitting in. Oh, we don't see any of that today, do we? But mom, all the other kids are... Tattooed? Does the Bible forbid tattoos? Yes. I'm sorry. There's a reason Moses starts out this way. Lord, your God, you're doing mighty works, mighty things, and I love it. Verse 25, he says, I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. Why is he praying, Lord, please let me cross over? Because the Lord had said what? You're not going to cross over. Why? Because he disobeyed because he didn't have enough faith. But it was just once that he disobeyed. The wages of sin is death. How many times do you have to sin before you've invoked the death penalty? Just once. Mm -hmm. 
So once God says, you will not cross into the promised land, is he going to change his mind? They say, oh, I was just kidding. Can't you take a joke? So it's almost like Moses is kind of like, God, you're so wonderful. Can you please just change your mind just this one time? Can you change your mind just this one time? And how does God respond? Absolutely not. Shut up. Yep. Here we go. Verse 26. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. You can plead with God to change his commandment. And it's not changing. Go ahead. Even Moses had so much faith, he ended up trying to blame it on somebody else. Even Moses, who had so much faith, ended up trying to blame somebody else. And how did that get him? The Lord told him to shut up. Please understand, the scripture says, the Lord our God surely does nothing unless he first reveals it through his servants, the prophets. Where is that? Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Does God tell us that there's somebody who's coming who will try to change God's commandments in his appointed times? That's Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Is that person the Messiah? No, it's the false Messiah. So when somebody tells you that God changed his commandment, think back to Daniel 7.25. God will never change his commandment, but there's somebody who will try and make you think he did. And that's the false Messiah. And that's that whole spirit of Antichrist that John says is already in the world. And that mystery of lawlessness that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is already here. Has been here since the Garden of Eden. Just close your eyes for a moment. Think back to the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago. God said, thou shalt not eat from the tree. And Satan said, oh, come on. Look how good it is. You've got to eat from that tree. And who did Adam and Eve listen to? Listen to the stalk and serpent and not to God. So when somebody says God was wrong, what's your first thought? Yeah, think back to the Garden of Eden. We know how this goes. This does not go well. Does the scripture tell us God does not lie? Where? Numbers chapter 23. Let's turn over there. While you're doing that, let me ask you. Ask it. So, I mean, this is a little bit of conjecture, but it, it sounds like what you're saying is that Satan already kind of knew God's plan about sending Messiah, and he was trying to thwart that plan from the beginning. Is that Absolutely right? true. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Well, Satan knew it. Satan knew it. Does Satan quote scripture to Messiah? Yes. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, meaning to change his mind. 
So when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is he going to come along in the 4th century and go, yeah, I changed my mind. I've had enough of that Sabbath stuff. Let's try some sun god worship instead. The answer is no. When you start doing that, it completely ruins the witness to Jewish people. How many Jewish people have I heard say, I know for sure Jesus is not the Messiah, because look at what all his disciples have done. They'll go back right back to Daniel 7.25. There's Jewish encyclopedias out there that say, here's how you know that Jesus is not the Messiah, because he taught people to abandon the commandments of God in God's appointed times. Did Yeshua do that? No, he did not. Does the church tell Jewish people he did that? Yes, they do. Correct. And again, until the Lord calls us home, you're going to see this verse over and over again. Psalm 89, verse 34. Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So every preacher who steps in a pulpit and says, the commandments don't apply anymore, they were done away with, what are they calling God? A liar. I don't want to stand near them come judgment day. It's a scary thing when you hear... When you're a preacher that has so much sway over people. Saying you need to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Does not the leading Protestant preacher today who has the most sway over the most number of people teach exactly that? Mm. Let's go back to Deuteronomy before I get angry. Remember, the scripture says, be angry and sin not, not, not to get angry. Okay. But I mean, it, is, you know, it does bring a little righteous indignation when you see so many people. It does bring a righteous indignation when you see so many people. I don't know who brought this, but thank you. <laughs> I didn't notice. I should have been watching. But, I mean, like, you, you see how that witness is so damaging. Yeah, you see how that witness is so damaging. Yep. Yep. If the church from the beginning and throughout its whole history had kept the commandments of God, do you think there would have been so many Jews who did not come to faith? <laughs> yes, sir. Yep, good mouth. To, mm-hmm. to admonish or correct. Yep. And then it's their responsibility from there forward. Right. Why don't we see God fearing people, uh, pastors, to go against these false teachers, I call them, and, and to deliver to them the word of the Lord that you are in. in error, you are incorrect, 
and you will be held accountable. At least they will have that pushback against them. And I don't. Yeah, they've been told, but they won't hear. But some do. But some do. You hear? Yeah. Like you were talking about yesterday. Some do. We had several down in Montgomery, Alabama, that picked up the Sabbath and the feast and the festivals and eating clean. So sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. A lot of the big names out there are still. I know. Just remain big names. I mean, they want prestige and honor and glory yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Where is their heart? Become Judgment Day. All right. Let's get back to Deuteronomy. Before I start telling more stories. <laughs> We're in Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 3. Verse 27. Go to the top of Pisgah. That's the mountain overlooking the Jordan River all the way to Jericho. And lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. But command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over before this people. He shall cause them to inherit the land which you see. So he stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Ooh, have you heard of Beth Peor? Yep, that's Numbers 23 to 25. 25 is where... Balaam brought the Moabite women over with their pagan idolatry. So, in the New Testament it says the Old Testament is there for us to learn from. What in Deuteronomy chapter 3 is there here for us to learn from? The first thing is, with God all things are possible for those with faith. When the children of Israel lacked faith, they didn't go into the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for 38 years until all that generation from 20 years old and above had died, save for Joshua and Caleb. So when the children of Israel came against the giant Sion and Og, they kept their faith in God, and God delivered the land absolutely, completely, with unquestioned victories. So where does fear come from? Go back to verse 22. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Fear comes from a lack of faith. So whenever in this world, and there will be times... That you will be listening to the news and you will start to be afraid. Right now, Russia and China and India are doing joint war games. And they're doing joint war games to warn the United States that they're about done with us. Can that cause fear to know that these nuclear nations are talking about attacking us from both shores? But it shouldn't because why? God's in charge. Keep your faith and everything will be all right. But what if they kill me? Well, let them threaten me with heaven, okay? What is our goal? Where are we headed? To heaven. 
Verse 24 reminds us that there is no other God besides the Lord our God. And that brings us to chapter 4. Pause for a second. Pause for a second. Verse 26 is another lesson that Moses did not realize was a lesson. But when the Lord was, he said, the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. Moses didn't realize it, but when he smote the rock the second time, it set up a type. Yeah. That in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, would tell us. Messiah died for you, that was Messiah smitten. Right. And the water came out of the rock. The second time, that's a no-no. You do not go into the promised land when having received Messiah's pardon and forgiveness, you smite him a second time. And that just, it goes completely against some popular doctrines. But that verse 26, that's another... um, Thing that we're taught it's a this type was set up Moses didn't seem to understand it but it is a type and God would not change it because that's a type correct smiting the rock was a picture of the crucifixion how many times was beside to be crucified once and you're right there's another part to that and that is that Moses hoped God would change his commandment God does not change his commandment What if we don't like his commandments? Mm -hmm. Then it's we who need to change. Get over it. Get over it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Oops. I see a red one out here. Let's see. Maybe somebody else. Oh, a red seven. Let me back up. Whoa. Numbers 23, 19. Okay. That got answered. Yes, Susie, that is absolutely correct. She says the spirit of the Antichrist is working in many modern-day churches. That's true. Yeah. Heartbreaking. What was the big error in Jewish theology schools? That there was a spoken word in addition to a written word. That they teach the commentaries and not the Bible. What's the big problem in Christian seminaries today? As a general, they teach the commentaries, the doctrine, and not the Bible. You can graduate most seminaries without owning a Bible. And that's sad. You can be ordained without believing in the virgin birth. Cassandra asks, I'm sorry, somebody asks, Didn't God change his mind when he first said Hezekiah would die? But then after Hezekiah prayed, God gave him 15 more years. How does this apply? The answer is no, Hezekiah still died. God did not say when Hezekiah was going to die, simply that he was going to die. And when Hezekiah prayed, God said, I'll add 15 more years, and then he died. So we have to be careful not to read in what God says. A lot of times in the scripture when it says God repented, the word does not mean repent. It means he relented. He was waiting on the repentance in the book of Jonah. Does God forgive sin when we repent? Yes, that's not a change. That's his nature. I mean, when Jonah went in and 
people had two choices, if they didn't repent, they would have been decimated. Correct. And remember, in Biblical Hebrew, when our English says, this is going to happen, they could have translated the same words, this might happen. But it all hinges on your repentance. It all hinges on your repentance. Absolutely correct. God is not changing his mind. God is acting in accordance with his nature. Yep, true. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 4. The first thing I want you to do is read carefully with me verse 1. Now, O Israel, usually it's not now, it's just and. And those O's, O Israel, there is no O in the Hebrew. They're just putting that in from, for the, per, the poetic and dramatic effect. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Yes, you need to put a thee between Lord and God. They keep trying to get us to think that Lord God is a name or something, a phrase. It's not. The Lord is a name. The God of your fathers is a description. God of your fathers is a word pair. Okay, but that's not what I want you to know. I want you to know that in this verse, there are four key words that are going to apply in all of Deuteronomy. I want you to write these down. By the way, they're commandments too. Now, Israel, here in the Shema is here. Here it says, listen, same word, Shema. S-H apostrophe M-A. It's the command to hear. It appears more than 30 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear doesn't just mean listen. It means listen and do. It means to obey. The next word is, which I teach you. Teach you. That verb is lamad. L-A-M-A-D. Depending upon which vowel pattern is in it, it means either to learn or to teach. So when Moses says, which I teach you to observe, it means you learn what I'm teaching you. So listen, obey it, learn it well. Seven times they're told to learn. And to observe, it's not to observe. The Hebrew word is shamar, S-H-A-M-A-R. It means to guard or keep. It's a very strong verb, the verb from which you get prison and guardian and guards and those kind of words. So listen, learn what I teach you. And guard it, keep it, never forget it. That you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. The other word is asah, A-S-A-H, which means do. Shamar appears 39 times. Do appears about 100 times. 
We talked at the very beginning of Deuteronomy that the normal word for conversation is sent. That's a pa'al verb, P-A apostrophe A-L. It means simple action. We're just talking. That's not the verbs that are used in Deuteronomy. It's debare, which is, yes, ma'am. Can I what? Go over the four again. Shema. Louder. Shema, which means hear. Like in the Shema we sing at the beginning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear appears more than 30 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And it means not just listen, but listen and obey. The second is Lamad, not Lamaz. That's different. Lamad, L-A-M-A-D, which means both teach and learn. Moses teaches not to hear his lips flap, but so that the children of Israel will learn. That's used seven times. The third one is shamar, S-H-A-M-A-R, which means to guard or to keep. To protect like you would protect something that is most valuable to you. 39 times. And the verb asaw, which means do, about 100 times. Asaw. A-S-A-H. Asaw. It can also be translated as make, but here it's going to be do. Yes, ma'am. So the song we sung earlier today about you watches Israel is that the same word? Yep. Shomer Israel. That's from Shamar. Shomer means guardian. He who keeps. How does God treat Israel? Guards it like a shepherd guarding the sheep. Yeah. It's part of... Um, I didn't underline which word because they didn't translate it correctly that way, did they? But you bring up an interesting point. See that word, go in and possess? That word doesn't just mean possess, it means to inherit as a permanent possession. It's not temporary, it's permanent. So those are the four key words of Deuteronomy. That we're going to see over and over and over again. Shamar, observe. So it's not just observe, it's guard, protect, treat as valuable. I'm getting an echo. Let me see. Somebody out there is trying to speak. Hello, Paul. Um, I didn't write it down. Let me take a look. What's that? It's law soaked. Yeah, it's for observe. And that's the word for possess. No, the word possess is. You were going to tell me. Go ahead, tell me, because you've had it in your studies. 
I'm sorry. Repeat that again. I say go ahead and tell me. I cut you off. Sorry about that. Uh, law of soap is the only word that I saw in my Tanakh look like uh, something derived from a song. Yes. And I was just wondering which English word in the NKJV corresponded to a song. Yeah, observe, to observe, la asot. Okay, thank you, Wayne. Yep, okay. Hang on. It's observe. I can, I remember that part. I saw as the law is so to observe. Okay, let's go on. Let's go on. The point is those four words are going to come up over and over and over again. So let's just go on. But there's something else in verse 1. Um, to possess, again, is to inherit. It says, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. That word giving is a participle. So they've translated that one correctly. Meaning, it's not just an historical fact. He didn't just give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But the giving continues from generation to generation. So it will never, ever end. Yeah, that kind of brings to mind the, uh, it was King Ahab that wanted the vineyard. And the, the gentleman said, From no, Nabaot, yeah. Yeah, no way. I'm not, and I guess it's really a lack of faith to give up your possession that God gave to you, right? Yes, because God says you can never permanently alienate the land once he's given it to you. You can sell it temporarily, but it must revert back to you. All right. Verse 2. Verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it. Did you hear that? You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. Does that mean you can substitute one command for another? If I don't like the commandment, thou shall not steal, can I substitute thou shall not eat broccoli? I still have the same number, but the answer is no. I both took away from and added to the word of God, and you cannot change God's commandments. So that's a commandment against the fences. That they that's a commandment against the fences, because what did they do? They added to. And they turned that into the law, or what they call the law. They turned that into what they call the law. They disregarded God's commandments and added their own. Kind of like changing the Sabbath. Like changing the Sabbath, yeah. Which, which word does that possess? Uh, which lexicon? Uh, you want to know what the Strong's number yes, is? Please. Okay. <coughs> Let me go to the Hebrew here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. Or I can just ask Daniel. It's 3423. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Because there's a bunch of yeah, there's a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, let me be back in charge. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it. 
that. What's the word that mean? Here's why. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So many people say, Wayne, you're talking about the law of Moses. That didn't come from God. Moses made it up. What does this say? That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Malachi 3.6 Malachi 3.6 Malachi 3.6 I am the Lord I do not change. If the Lord does not change, can his commandments change? Answer is no. You already wrote down your note, Psalm 89.34, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. You've also written down Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie nor the son of man that he should change his mind. There I think they said in our English, repent, but it means change his mind. Deuteronomy 12.32. Moses is still standing at the podium. He's still red in the face. He's still pounding it with both fists. And he says, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. What's it mean to observe it? To do it. To obey it. To put it into practice. But why does he tell us that again so soon? Chapter 4 and chapter 12. It may well be all on the same day, or it could be the next day. But he wants to make sure they do not forget it. Does he know they're going to forget it? He says that. <laughs> he says that in black and white. Yes. Let's go look at Revelation 22, 18 and 19. We're in the very last book of the Bible. It says, don't you add to or take away from this book. Verse 18, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Yep, it's it's really straightforward, isn't it? How do they They get around it by doing this? Well, we've been doing it in the church for all these years, so God must think it's okay. Yeah. They started it because the king would kill you if you didn't do They started because the king would kill you if you didn't do it. That's true. I hear so many objections like this. 
Wayne, God could not possibly care what we eat. In the Garden of Eden, what did Adam and Eve do? They ate what God said not to eat. Yeah. I, I've tried recently to talk to a seminary student in a Baptist seminary about the Sabbath. He said, oh, no, no, no. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Turn over to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says right there, no, on the first day of the week. See, they were going to church on Sunday morning. I said, the Greek says, me atone sabbaton, on one of the Sabbaths. And he said, no, it doesn't. I said, have you studied Greek? No. <laughs> then how do you know it doesn't say me atone sabbaton? Because I've been told. Okay. God has to agree with whatever I've been told. Yeah. If you do not want to hear, you will not hear. How many times did Messiah say when he was walking this earth, he who has an ear to hear? Is that the same phraseology he uses in Revelation? Right. In Revelation it says, he who has an ear, hear. So when he walked this earth, preaching, he would say, he who wants to know, listen. In Revelation, he says, it's too late to not want to hear. If you've got an ear, hear. Let's turn to Revelation and look. It's quite different. Wait, wait. Yes. Everybody. That's exactly... Yes, no longer if you desire to listen, it's, it's too late to not want to listen. It's in motion. Revelation 2. For the first church, the church at Ephesus, it's verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 11, to the second church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I mean, it's too late to try and decide, do I want to hear or not? It's, do you want to live or do you want to die? Again and again and again. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's at the end of each of the individual letters to the individual churches. Chapter 3, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's like when Moses in Deuteronomy 30 says, I set before you today life and death. Choose life. Messiah is saying in Revelation, stop choosing death. Repent now. It's too late to be playing. Wayne? Yes, I'm... Moses, or not Moses, but Yeshua also told the Pharisees of the day that they would not listen to Moses, so why would they listen to him? One more time, a little louder. That's okay. 
Yeshua told the Pharisees of his day that if they would not listen to Moses, then they would. Right. Right. And when Lazarus and the rich man died, and the rich man said, Send Lazarus from the dead to go talk to my brothers. And Messiah said, If they won't hear Moses, they won't hear one who rose from the dead either. You're right. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 3. Your eyes have seen. Every person there saw what happened at Baal Peor. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. That's important. How many of those who participated in the sexual immorality and pagan idolatry survived? None. How many who did not participate died? None. 100% of those who were guilty died. 0% of those who were innocent died. What does that tell us? That God judges sin. Does God pour out his wrath on everybody? Or does God pour out his wrath on sinners? I've heard a lot of preachers in the last two weeks say, no, 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 there's no rapture. The church has to go through the tribulation so God can pour out its wrath on the church. <laughs> Let's go back to Deuteronomy 4. Okay. I stepped into it then. Okay. Let's go look and see what happened at Baal Peor. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. Somebody says, Am I correct then that if someone I'm talking to stares at me and gets rude and obnoxious, I simply walk away? The answer is yes. Don't cast your pearls before swine. If they don't want to hear, they've made their choice. Numbers 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Whose idea was that? Balaam's. Because he wanted Balak's money. Ba Balaam was hired by Balak to go curse the children of Israel and God wouldn't allow him to do that. But Balaam really wanted that gold. So he said, I know how to get God to judge the people. So he brought these, shall we say, loose moraled women. And all you had to do to play with the girls was to just eat some of the sacrifice. That's all. That was the admission price. And go have fun. And did the children of Israel fall all over themselves to go do it? Let's read. Numbers 25, verse 1. Okay, if you're not there, let me give you a minute. What's the time frame? Uh, exact, remember, I mean, like, how many years they've been wandering? They're almost at the very end. Oh, it's almost at the very end. Because they're at Mount Pisgah. 
Yep. So 25, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. That word harlotry includes the idolatry. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Notice it doesn't say all the people. Too many people read that into it. It's not all the people. We're going to find that out in a few minutes. But there were too many who were quite willing to go eat that pig at the sacrifice so they could play with the prostitutes. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor because when they go and eat that pagan sacrifice, that makes that pagan god their god. They have turned away from the Lord. They have forsaken the Lord and joined themselves to Baal. Baal of Peor is Baal. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun. Are they building gallows out of wood with long ropes? No. It's to impale them and put them up on a stake so everybody can see. So right now this tells you it's not all the people. Because the leaders are to take all those who did participate and impale them. That the fierce, what's that? I thought that was invented by the, some country later on. Crucifixion was not invented at the time that David prophesied about it in Psalm 22. But isn't this crucifixion? No. No. Impaling them? No. No, this is impaling them on the stake. I thought that was crucifixion. No, it's not. Crucifixion is different. It's like skewering them with a stick and then putting the stick up in the ground and the stake is running through the body. That's not crucifixion. That is not crucifixion. No, crucifixion did not exist at this point. And the, what's the difference between the two? The difference is the way that you're hung up on the tree. It's to compress the chest where you cannot breathe. To make it a very long, tortuous death. And they put the nails through the heels so that you can push up with your feet to get a breath. Which is excruciatingly painful on the legs. And then it just extends the dying process where sometimes it took three or four days for people to die. So this one, the impaling kills them. Yeah. yeah. All right, uh, you may have said so already, but verse 3 where it reads, So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. So that means those people that took part in the worship made Baal of Peor their God. So I, I, my question would be, in when there is a group of people, whether it be a family, a city, or a nation, so to speak, if sin is allowed to continue, then those, even those not participating in that sin, are they not? Those who tolerate and approve of the sin, yeah, that's Romans they, chapter they are 1. They as well. Yeah. But this verse 3 doesn't mean all Israel. Right. It's those who chose to participate in this. Right. So let's keep reading. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the... Wait, I got one out there. Let's see.
Sam asks, are some of the meat processors in the USA dedicating meat to the Muslim God? Yes, those meats are marked halal. So we don't do meat that's marked halal. He says, if so, what do we do what for? That is, you don't buy meat that's marked halal. Pat Collette says, how would we know this? Because it's marked halal. And Susie says, yes, there is, Sam. Okay, all done. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun. So they're going to be hung up on stakes high above the people so everybody can see the consequences of pagan idolatry and sexual immorality. It says that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So if Israel tolerates the sin, all Israel is going to get judged. So that, I know that was your point. But when the leaders take the people and hang them in the sun for everybody to see this was wrong, then the Lord's anger would turn away. So verse 5 says, So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. What if this is your brother? What if this is your son? It makes no difference. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came. That is, somebody wants to challenge Moses. When one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. His purpose is to say, hey, wait a minute. You want to choose some unknown desert God who just did all these great miracles, wonder for us? Or do you want this beautiful woman here? Do you really care if God's offended? Yeah. So he's trying to persuade them, hey, quit, don't, don't repent, let's have fun. So verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. What's a javelin? It's a spear. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. So when the people were beginning to think, you know what? Maybe I would rather have sex with these foreign prostitutes than worship this true and living God. Plague breaks out. Just those that were participating in the sin. That's why we've got to keep reading because it's going to tell us only those who were guilty of the sin died. No one else. Does that answer your question? Then let's keep reading. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. 
Okay, that's what happened. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. There's more to this story, but Moses is going to remind us of it. Yes, Sam. Yeah. That means if the children of Israel had decided, you know, this guy's right. Forget God. Let's go play with the prostitutes of Baal. Then they would all have been eliminated. If they all participated in the sin, who does God judge? The guilty. But Phineas led a revolt of the people to say, no, we will not turn away from God. We will stay true to God. Does God allow the plague to go out through the people after they've repented? The answer is no. This thing that happened at Baal Peor, God does not want us ever to forget it. Let's go to Psalm 107. It's memorialized in the Psalms. Psalm 107. Verses 28 and 29. Is that what I meant? Is that a 107? Is that what it says? Yes, sir. They ate the sacrifices of the dead. Like for one of them. Yeah, I am in 106. Yeah, I am in 106. I'm sorry. It is Psalm 106. Yep, I turned to page 2. Verses 28 and 29. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. That's the promise of the eternal priesthood. Let's go to Hosea chapter 9 verse 10. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10. And I'm going a minute or two over, sorry. I'll be, I'll be quick. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. Then back to Joshua chapter 22. 
I just want you to see God reminds us again and again about Baal Peor. What a mistake it was to turn from the true and living God to worship the pagan idols of Moab and to participate in the sexual immorality and idolatry and unclean foods associated with it. Joshua chapter 22, verses 10 to 18. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. What's wrong with that? God in Deuteronomy 12 says, only in Jerusalem. But they said, eh, we'll build one here anyway. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Just like Phinehas had gone to war against those at Baal Peor. Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to half the tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead. Remember, he's the same guy with the javelin. And with him ten rulers, one ruler each, from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to half the tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel? to turn away this day from following the Lord, and that you have built for yourselves an altar, that you might rebel this day against the Lord. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it shall be if you rebel today, against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But that's not what they really meant it for. You go on and read, they just wanted it to be a reminder. Right, it's not what they meant it for. But Moses had just told them twice, do not add to the commandments of God. God said the only place you can do one is at the tabernacle and in the temple in Jerusalem. They could not build another one. Yeah. What they wanted to do was, we don't want to go up to Jerusalem to worship. We want to have our own kingdom over here, our own center of worship. And that would have been okay if God hadn't said no. Yeah, let's go to Deuteronomy 12. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12. I'll take just another minute and then we'll be done. That's okay. 
Deuteronomy 12. Verses 1 through till we quit. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, out of all your tribes, to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go, that's Jerusalem. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And those on the other side of the river said, we want to build an altar on our side so we don't have to go up to Jerusalem. We don't want to have to go up there and worship God. And when you start breaking God's commandments, where does it lead? And Joshua is saying it's going to be just like Baal of Peor. You'll start out with good intentions and quickly it'll go bad. Yes, ma'am. If Israel was not supposed to have any other place to sacrifice, okay? When America was born, everybody could come and do whatever they wanted here. America was founded on freedom of religion, yes, which meant we were not supposed to have a national mandated religion. It was actually, there were all these flavors of Christianity. There was the Baptist, the Anabaptist, they were the Methodists, they were the Catholics, and they were afraid that America would become like the like England, which had the Church of England, which was, well, you know, you know the history. Okay, but I'm way over now, so I will stop, and we'll pick up next time, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 4, which is where we're going to learn that there was a 100% death rate for those who participated, and a 100% survival rate among those who refused to participate in the rebellion against God.